The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So the the way I've uh, <clears throat> approached Dharma practice is less less of the Dharma as a set of answers and more as a kind of open question, a method of inquiry. And uh, talk is in that spirit. So um, many people these days seem kind of ragged. And, um, and people who care about other people seem especially ragged, weary. And um, the pace of the news seems uh, unrelenting and unsustainable, you know, for a lot of people emotionally. And there's a sense, and we're always warned against this sense when we have it in a moment of meditation, but there's a sense, maybe diluted, like it's hard to imagine it getting better, kind of. You know, there's a sense of like all these different karmic streams converging in ways that make it hard to imagine feeling a lot lighter, at least. And... uh, I was thinking just like there's a a kind of um, consumer confidence index, you know, of like sort of economic expectations and attitudes among the public and what do you think about interest rates or something? What do you, you know, what are your buying intentions? Um, It's also kind of like... uh, humanity confidence index and um, our humanity confidence index right now is like kind of shaky and um, there's a sense that we um, maybe can't keep going the way we've been going And uh, we've been mining the world, the earth, and now mining ourselves. So this is a kind of a notable quote from uh, Justin Rosenstein, tech kind of founder who's concerned about, uh, about these things said, um, we live in a world in which a tree is worth more financially dead than alive, in a world in which a whale is worth more dead than alive. For so long as our, uh, our economy works in that way and corporations are unregulated, they're going to continue to destroy trees, to kill whales, to mine the earth, and to continue to pull oil out of the ground, even though we know it's destroying the planet and we know it's going to leave a worse world for future generations. This is short-term 
thinking based on the religion of uh, profit and all costs, as if somehow magically each corporation acting in its selfish interest is going to produce the best result. This has been affecting the environment for a long time. What's frightening and what hopefully is the last straw that will wake us up as a civilization to how flawed this theory has been in the first place is to see that now we're the tree, we're the whale. Our attention can be mined. We are more profitable to a corporation if we're spending time staring at a screen, staring at an ad, than if we're spending time living our life in a rich way. And so we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing corporations using powerful artificial intelligence to outsmart us and figure out how to pull our attention towards the things they want us to look at rather than the things that are most consistent with our goals and our values and our lives. At some point in, in life, we realize that the, the kind of time left we have, the time left is, um, is less than what we've already lived. And um, it can feel the same for societies, you know, like have we hit kind of apex point and feel like we're in descent? as this particular generation, the unique, extraordinary, fortunate and unfortunate inflection point? Or is that just the vanity and grandiosity of our generation? Yeah. Because um, just like every person thinks they're special, every generation thinks it's special. So maybe we're just being seduced into a certain kind of grandiosity of this as a kind of inflection point. But it, um, for people who care about people, it's um, intense. And uh, of course, I'm thinking about Roe, and I'm thinking just more generally about the ascendancy of, and the, the way that greed, aversion, delusion are dignified culture-wide. There is a moment, this is September 2020, and... Um, George uh, George Floyd was was killed May twenty fifth, and um, a very dangerous, as is still uh, unstable, political situation. And there were fires. There was a fire, big fire down outside Fresno somewhere, and then up north, and uh, the air on the ground was okay. The air on the ground was good, actually. 
But whatever the atmospheric conditions, maybe you remember this day, the atmospheric conditions were such that the the smoke was held, you know, real high and had this like wild distorting effect on the light. And it was like dark in the middle of the day and orange. And that day I was at a Buddhist teacher meeting on Zoom, as we all were on Zoom then. I was at a Buddhist teacher meeting and um, it was grim. Yeah, very painful day. And, um, and there's a certain kind of collapse that happens in the mind when um, like the badness, the different kind of points of pain in the body politic and the world do not add up together they they're sort of synergistic they it's not badness plus badness plus badness it's like badness multiplied by badness multiplied again and it's a distinctive phenomenology you know like that sense of the collapse of the mind this kind of inward heart collapse and um and there's no, no space. Yeah. The Zen master said, hell is no space. And two days after that, I gave a meeting on the, uh, gave a, a, a talk uh, on the 19th anniversary of September 11th. And, um, and normally that group is about I don't know, 125 people, and it was double that, that day, yeah. And, um, and I talked about love, you know, just holding on. And I thought of the, um, the Tom Waits song, Hold On, yeah. Lyrics, um, down by the riverside motel, it's 10 below and falling. By a 99 cent store, she closed her eyes and started swaying. But it's so hard to dance that way when it's cold and there's no music. Oh, your hometown's so far away, but inside your head, there's a record that's playing a song called Hold On. Hold on, babe, you gotta hold on. Take my hand, I'm standing right here. You gotta hold on. One of the things that happens in moments like, like that is a kind of collapse into a certain kind of nihilism or desperation, frenzy. And the, the Buddha warned against nihilism, felt like it was, that, was, that was a consequence, uh, there was a potential risk of opening to the contingency of all things. And maybe we intuitively know that it's not satisfying for our heart, yeah? It's like, 
once we've we've seen the kind of poignancy of the human condition, it's very it's hard to just devolve into nihilism. So then we want to act. We move into the more frenzied, desperate mode, but are almost immediately confronted with our own nearly complete helplessness. Uh, maybe, um, maybe suffering, dukkha, and helplessness are uh, kind of synonyms almost. I read that, um, you know, people cry for many reasons, but one of the reasons we cry is is from a sense of helplessness. And, um, or tears being a kind of plea, a social plea, saying something like, I, I need you. But now we cry for others and um, often feels like no one's coming. And all of this, all of this, this portrait I'm painting can scramble us and um, there's a kind of fire hose of negative affect, you know, that sense of just spraying kind of negative affect in all directions. And then enter Twitter. (laughs) And um, kind of just like, just grappling, scrambling to try to find a view that's satisfying, to try to find an outlet for this fire hose of negative affect. And all of this can undercut faith in Dhamma in the path. It makes us wonder maybe in moments, it's, maybe it's not such a meaningful thing. Or maybe it makes us wonder like, is it self-indulgent to even care how I'm doing? Is it self-indulgent to even try to potentiate my well-being, to fiddle with the nuances of my own suffering as the world uh, burns? And so we can get into this mode of practicing where we're kind of trying to save ourselves and kind of trying to save the world, and it's a form of multitasking. And practice is not does not flourish when we're multitasking in it. And so we're stuck. So what to do? And this, of course, is uh, where I'm supposed to pivot and give you answers. Your laughter conveys to me that you know I don't have them, you know? Uh, But um, it's worth interrogating the, the view that 
you know, fosters the dilemma I, I laid out and to make a few suggestions. Now, um, I'm always cautious about anything that actually blunts the, the force of what I've just shared. I'm a little cautious because sometimes the depth of that pain, you sort of just want to wiggle out of it in whatever way we can with kind of vague platitudes or palliative measures and thoughts that just help us takes the edge off the intensity of the need and suffering and um, and I'm very conscious uh, of my own fortune, privilege, social location, as I, uh, anytime I talk about progress, I'm very conscious of that. Because it can, to talk of progress is, can seem like it is uh, diminishing the meaning of the existing suffering, yeah? The enormity of the suffering. And so that that's an important caveat, but um, but many many things are getting better, and not to see that, not to attune to that, is its own kind of delusion. And so, the global burden of disease, or the trends over recent decades of human rights internationally, trends in terms of of, uh, of violence and um, trends in terms of uh, extreme poverty. It's, it's, it costs more now to save a life than it did. It's the cost is going up and that's actually good news right? Because to actually intervene in a way to save a life that otherwise would, would, somebody would have died, it costs more because fewer people are dying needlessly through, that could be prevented through very basic interventions. This is a good thing that it costs more to save a life now. And so this perception that everything is always getting worse is, is, not, is not right. And that's um, an important corrective to us attuning to the kind of enormity of dukkha. Um, some researchers, Talio Wheatley and Dan Gilbert and colleagues said... Um, uh, did a series of studies where they they described a phenomena where when the instances of badness grow less common, the concept of badness expands, becomes more prominent. As as there's a decreasingly less gross yucky context, the examples of badness become more prominent. 
So they write, um, many organizations, institutions are dedicated to identifying and reducing the prevalence of social problems. But our studies suggest that even well-meaning agents may sometimes fail to recognize the success of their efforts simply because they view each new instance in the decreasingly problematic context that they themselves have brought about. Although modern societies have made extraordinary progress in solving a wide range of social problems from poverty and illiteracy to violence and infant mortality, the majority of people believe that the world is getting worse. The fact that concepts grow larger when their instances grow smaller may be one source of that pessimism. So we attune, we attune to this, yeah? And not just because um, to, to blunt the pain of the reality of dukkha, but because uh, to not know that uh, fosters its own kind of delusion, as I said. And with all that said, you know, I'm kind of pivoting between depressing, uplifting, and we're making another pivot here. <laughs> all the positive trends yeah, that are enumerated that you can see in the data that are very striking when you look at the data. They are threatened by larger risks. And um, as I was starting, like, you know, I was saying, like, every generation thinks, every generation thinks it's special, you know, like you always hear like, oh, back when I, you know, or whatever, things now or what, you know, all these things, right? And so there is, there is a certain kind of, yeah, like a grandiosity, generational grandiosity that mirrors the egoic process of an individual. And so I'm generally skeptical of like, pivotal moments, hinge points, you know, but, but these couple generations may actually be that. Yeah. This is, um, Toby Ord. The threats to humanity and how we address them define our time. The advent of nuclear weapons pose a real risk to human extinction in the 20th century the continued acceleration of technology and without serious efforts to protect humanity, there's strong reason to believe that the risk will be higher this century and increasing with each century that technological progress continues. Because these human-generated risks outstrip all natural risks combined, they set the clock on how long humanity has left to pull back from the brink I'm not claiming that extinction is the inevitable conclusion of scientific progress or even the most likely outcome. What I am claiming is there's been a robust trend towards increases in the power of humanity, which has reached a point where we pose a serious risk to our own existence. Recognizing 
goes on to say, recognizing that people matter equally wherever they are in time is a crucial next step in the ongoing story of humanity's moral progress. Our own generation is but one page in a much longer story and that our most important role may be how we shape or fail to shape that story. This approach is animated by a moral reorientation toward the vast future that existential risks threaten to foreclose. And he suggested that um, humanity is, is maybe in its kind of like adolescent phase where we have a lot of power and aren't sure what to do with it. Yeah. A lot of, of power, but are naive in important ways. And adolescents, like adolescent health, adolescents are like peak physical health and yet die at much higher rates than you would expect. The sense of like, yeah, we're playing with fire. I, that, that does seem to me not to be catastrophizing. That seems real. Like, and to worry, to worry is not unreasonable. And so amidst the vastness of suffering and the possibilities of the future, like what stance will I take? What does this mean for my heart? How do I want to be informed by this moment? And we bump up against the, the, the kind of blessings and consolation of Dharma and the, the limitations of Dharma and for I often say for for some forms of um, of dis-ease, the Dharma seems to me like the only medicine there is. For certain kinds forms of suffering, I can't imagine any medicine being adequate treatment. But that doesn't mean that the Dharma is the medicine for all forms of dis-ease. In other words. Dukkha is an interdisciplinary problem. Yeah? And in a way, if we expect Dharma to answer all species of suffering, it may fail to answer those species it can. And so we look to all the wisdom of the world all the wisdom of the world to science and, and art and philosophy and movement building and philanthropy and all of it. Now, as, as I engage with the world, you know, I want my suffering to be efficient. I'm willing to suffer, to engage, to avoid the deadness of apathy or nihilism or whatever. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to enter the public sphere and suffer. Yeah? But I want that suffering to be 
efficient. I don't want to waste it. And as I look back on my life, there are some patches of suffering that um, seem totally necessary and onward leading and important and generative. It's like, oh yeah, I had to suffer in those ways. And I know there are ways in the future that I will need to suffer, that will be the redemptive form of suffering, the onward leading form of suffering. And I can also look back on my life, maybe anybody can, and see patches and strands, threads of suffering that appear almost utterly meaningless and cyclical and unnecessary, unnecessary. It just didn't lead anywhere. It didn't accomplish anything. It was just me circling in some kind of little vortex of confusion and pain and not knowing how to break the kind of break it. And so we have to, part of our Dharma practice is becoming connoisseurs of our suffering, yeah? And spending it wisely. Engaging in ways that, like, we're suffering efficiently, not cyclically, not uselessly. And so we consent to some measure of suffering. We're not giving up on samsara, and we're, we're also not, we're careful not to suffer meaninglessly. And so I think of this to some extent in how we engage with media, news, like what aspects of that engagement are like redemptive, important suffering and what parts are just kind of have that, that cyclical, like just spinning the wheel of samsara feeling. And this is a place to inquire and to look, like what am I doing to my mind? Is it useful? What can I actually open to? What do I have to like blunt myself from feeling because I'm so overexposed? And it's just this sense, you know, like when I actually read the paper, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, my nervous system like isn't really equipped to open to the enormity of suffering of samsara all the time. Yeah. And what does that do when I like kind of open and kind of close to it? So we're careful in how we dose this, how we dose our, the information. But um, we also find something to do. That anxiety needs to be bound, you know, it needs to be bound to action. You know, that's, that's part of what actually, um, that's 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 part of this picture in to my mind 
And so some of the kind of compulsivity about news is a function of our the sense of our own powerlessness. And it's like, well, okay, if I'm completely powerless, I, at least I can just keep consuming that or something or speaking about that. And instead it's like, no, we just do something. We find efficient ways to spend our heart, to spend our suffering, to consent to some measure of suffering and engage, hopefully, in efficient ways. And so we, we are called at times to give, to give until it hurts, time or money or effort or something we actually like it's a practice of of like give and this is giving till it hurts this is not like some incredibly mercenary manipulation to try to get donna from you by the way <laughs> i'm not a psychopath you know but no it's like we give until it hurts you know and um and it's like we sometimes we're in this mode of like half compassion half equanimity and my experience, it's like, no, 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 100% compassion and then 100% equanimity. It's like we give and then we really rest. We really firewall some parts of our life and we really rest. Otherwise, it's like this half open heart, half equanimous, you know, kind of sense of like recognizing our the limitations of our own wishes to, to control samsara and that half equanimity half compassion is its own kind of fatigue and so we we really give we try to serve in ways that are meaningful even in the face of the enormity of suffering, we try to serve in ways that are meaningful and then we rest and we really rest. I think of the Dharma primarily as a, as a technology of freeing our own heart, freeing our own heart of greed, hate, and delusion. I think there are other traditions of wisdom that are relevant for change at a collective level. Nevertheless, our Dharma practice is relevant. It endows us with skills that are powerful for engaging the dukkha of the world. We, we learn, we learn to truly care about suffering. For the earth shattering poignancy of that to rain down on us. And just that closes the kind of distance that we might imagine between ourself and someone on the other side of the world or ourself and someone in the distant future. The circle of, uh, of empathy yeah, widens, widens. We know, we know how deeply we share the longing to be free from suffering. That is like in the bones. That's in our bones. And we learn how to grieve well 
which is indispensable if we're to open to suffering and to engage it. If we don't know how to like open to the rhythms of grieving and the, the prospect of loss, the reality, the inevitability of loss, we get spun in many ways. We cultivate a deep patience, a deep patience that these are multi-generational efforts. The parami of patience. We're learning to drain uh, egoic investment from our views. The ways in which our views become charged with egoic energy. And we think our self-righteousness makes us more persuasive, but it makes us much, much less. It makes us much less. It is a form of clinging. Yeah. And so we can actually sense the moral force of a view that is enunciated without clinging. And we're coming to terms um, with death. Uh, that, that is so crucial. It's part of our practice. And part of, uh, I feel, maybe a prerequisite, actually, for engaging with the broader world of dukkha at, as it constellates the societal level. Because um, when we have no freedom around our own death, it distorts our engagement in many ways. It's like um, our own death is, uh, it's Mara's ultimate trump card. Yeah. And Camus said something like, uh, make peace with death after that anything is possible yeah. and so in this realm so much delusion so much kind of fear and manipulation arises out of our own incomplete relationship with mortality with the changingness, the the loss of all things. And so, uh, we uh, find a way to serve, we let go of suffering that is inefficient, and we rest. seems like a good enough life to me. Sit for a minute.
I offer, offer these thoughts for your consideration. And uh, it's an idiosyncratic path, and um, you have to determine what to um, what is useful, what to pick up and consider, investigate, and what to leave behind. Yeah. So thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to. Uh, ask some of these questions together. Yeah. May uh may we live well. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>